You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Shakespeare to Schwartz, from Fosse to Alvin Ailey, from Sondheim to Borellis, from McNally to Fay. It happened to the greats, it still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. When lightning strikes, where you're meant to go. You can stand and shout Eureka, do whatever you like. You'll never forget the moment when lightning strikes. Hi, this is Gerald Brunner, and you're listening to When Lightning Strikes, where we talk about the tingly mic drop moments that led you to becoming an artist. Katie Sullivan is reprising her role as Annie in the Pulitzer Prize winning play Cost of Living, which opened on Broadway October 3rd. Just a few of her other acting credits includes Dexter Newblood, My Name is Earl, and Last Man Standing, a double below-the-knee bilateral amputee and four-time U.S. Paralympic champion. Katie is the first female amputee and only the second amputee actor to ever appear in a Broadway production. So welcome, Katie. It's such a joy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled. Really excited because uh, I think about when I first connected to you, it was uh, when Cost of Living was, um, was off Broadway and now it's coming to Broadway and tonight is your opening night. So how do you feel? I mean, I'm, I, I feel like... Uh, it's kind of a dream come true. I think a, any kid that kind of grows up as a theater nerd, <laughs> like, you know, it's kind of, it's the Super Bowl. So like you either sink or you swim, you, you know, it's, it's, um, that's one of the most amazing things about live theater in general is that it's just, you don't really know what's going to happen. And, um, you just kind of get on the roller coaster and go for the ride. And I'm, I'm just really excited. It's, such an incredible piece of work. And, um, at, I mean, at the end of the day, it's really changed my life in a lot of ways. Well, can you take me to 2016? Was it then when you first read this gorgeous play, Martina, beautiful play, Cost of Living, and what went through your mind? Um, a couple things went through my mind when I first read this play. One was, uh, I was incredibly intimidated by it. Um, it is these characters who are incredibly vulnerable and incredibly going through some pretty extreme situations, but she also 
very clearly instructs actors to not uh, let these characters get too um, sentimental. So like they don't have time for a lot of sentimentality. So um, it's this crazy balance of, of people dealing with each other in these extreme circumstances, but um, not being able to sit in their feelings <laughs> too, too long. So um, it, it, it was an intimidating piece, but I also believe as an artist, when something, when you're offered, to, you know, something confronted with something or have the opportunity to, to be a part of something that scares you, it's like, okay, that's, that's probably worth your time. What was so scary about it? And for people who don't know this play, can you talk about what it's about? I, there's so many themes to it and elements and there's two caretakers right at its core. Mm-hmm. And then two people are being taken care of. And yet, and, but then you realize who's really being taken care of and, right. and how their lives intermingle. But can you tell us about this play, what it's about? I, it is, um, it's, it's kind of two storylines that you don't know how they're connected until the very end. And, um, like you said, it's a person who needs care and a caregiver. And then on the other side, a person who needs care and a caregiver. And, um, on my side of the play, it's my, uh, husband who we are separated. (laughs) So, um, and my character has, is a recent, it's been a, a, she's about six months after an accident, a car accident that has left her a quadriplegic and an amp, a double amputee. Cause that is, that is me. I am a double amputee. So we sort of included that into her story. Um, cause I was like, it doesn't make any sense for her to be sitting in a wheelchair with prosthetic legs on. Like, why are we doing this? So like, you know, that's kind of where that came from. But, and then on the other side of it, it is, um, a character named John and a character named Jess, and she is taking care of him. And he has uh, cerebral palsy, which is from birth. Um, and it really kind of is, there's a lot of thematic um, elements to it where it's sort of comparing like the haves and the have not you know, like people trying to just make ends meet and someone who has means and privilege to be able to choose who to take, who is going to take care of him. And, um, you know, he almost wants someone to take care of him that he finds entertaining, you know, that he's like excited to like have cool conversations with in the morning when he's getting dressed. And, um, on our side of things, it's like my nurse didn't show up and it's like, you know, so it's, it really digs into, um, even just like elements of like care in this country, who gets it, who, who needs it. Um, the character Jess, her mother has to leave the the country because she they can't afford her health care. And um, but at the end of the day, it, it is a play about the fact that we all need someone for something. And it's not just physically it's not just specifically about people who need physical care. We all need emotional care, too. And all these characters are so multidimensional, mul- so human and I think about Ali and how she's tough as nails. <laughs> she's hilarious. You know, I think of your comic timing. What what do you love about her? And can you talk about what qualities she has that you adore? I um I love so many things about Ani. I at this point, it's been I've been this is my fifth production of this show over the course of six years and 
at this point, it just feels like visiting an old friend. I mean, she is, like you said, she is tough as nails. She's really hurt, though, at the core of that. You know, she's been disappointed by her relationship and her husband, but they also, um, a lot of the reasons for the disappointment and sadness is kind of some of her own problems. She has addiction problems. She's an alcoholic. She, that's what caused the accident and what caused probably the, the disintegration of her relationship. Um, so facing those incredibly challenging real life issues and, and themes, but with this, as you also said, wit and humor, and she is, uh, she's got a, she has got her, her tongue is like a, you know, a sword. (laughs) She is, (laughs) all she has is her ability to communicate after her movement is taken away. So, um, I don't know if that's sharpened it or what, but she is, uh, just delicious to play. And, um, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, Ani uses um, humor as a defense mechanism so that she doesn't show her vulnerability. It's the moments where she's actually vulnerable that she makes a joke or she cracks a, you know, a witty comment. So um, and I think that that's relatable to a lot of people. You know, a lot of people use humor as a defense mechanism. Yeah, yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's a fascinating dynamic between her and her ex Here he is taking care of her. She has to depend on him and he's feeling guilty and they have this complex history. Right. Which makes for incredible theater. And I I always loved um, Jesse Green's New York Times review back when the show opened off Broadway Mm -hmm. when he said it would be a mistake to see cost of living as an identity play about people with disabilities. Rather, it's a play about disabilities with people in both its stories, which eventually collide. The biggest handicaps are the universal ones, fear and disconnection. I just think that's really powerful. Very powerful and and refreshing that that is that, that that is coming through. Like that is what we all hope for. I think people see a wheelchair or two wheelchairs and they're like, oh, this is a play about disability. And it's, it's so not, it's a play about relationships and about people trying to just get to the next day. You know, it's not, um, and, uh, it is so refreshing to, to hear people kind of walk away with that. That's amazing. Yeah. Cause it really is about, human beings trying to connect, trying to navigate this very complicated world. Yeah. You know, and they're all struggling so much in their own ways. And I'd love to know about your lightning strikes moments. When sure. did you know you had to be an artist? Once you told me about seeing Charlie in the Chocolate Factory mm-hmm. when you were a kid in Alabama. But I'll let you tell the stories of your lightning strikes moments? The ones that really stick out for me, I mean, first, before I even understood it was a thing or possible, there was something about um, seeing the movie Annie when I was really little that I was just like, 
I, I would walk, <laughs> I would walk around my house, um, singing, I'm Annie, I'm Annie. I love you. I'm Annie. Like <laughs> I didn't know what acting was and I didn't know. I just knew that these were children and I didn't understand how they got to do this. And, um, you know, I'm living in a town in Alabama and I was like, I don't, do you think there are like agents here? Like, <laughs> I was just like, you know, my parents were like, oh my God. But it really was, I think the biggest lightning strike moment for me was, um, when I saw a production, a children's theater production in Alabama of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the girl who plays, uh, played Violet went to my elementary school and I almost fell out of my chair. I was like, I know her. Like all of a sudden it all became possible. The world opened up and it was like, oh, but like she goes, she goes to my school. Like people can do that. This is a thing actually people can do. So, um, it was really at that moment. And after that moment that I was just like, well, no, I'm going to be an actor. Like, you know, even in like second or third grade, ask me what I was going to do. And I would be like, well, I'm going to be an actor. <laughs> Without ever if, having really understanding what that means. <laughs> and where was this in Alabama? In what? Tuscaloosa. I grew up in, um, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So, um, and you know, I grew up after that point, started auditioning for, for, children's theater stuff myself. And I did a bunch of community theater and I, I was so, I felt so hard in love with theater and the process that I would do anything. I would paint sets. I would help build sets. I was a stage manager. Sometimes I uh, helped with costumes and I was terrible at that. And they were like, maybe let's do something else. But, um, <laughs> they, uh, I just wanted to be in the building. Like, that's all I cared about. Like, I actually think I even not think, I'm sorry. I missed my prom because I was doing a play. <laughs> like if that shows you my commitment to that, this is all I've ever wanted to do. I didn't even go to, I didn't go to prom because I was, what? I was doing a play. What was the play? I think it was, I think it was, I think it was, you can't, that you can't take it with you. Um, and yeah. it was, it, you know, it was community theater and it was, you know, I, I much, I was so much happier being in that space with, with other artists and other actors and like going to the prom and like football games and stuff like that. Like none of that, it just didn't matter to me in the same way. So I, I, I knew so early on that I was like, this is it. That's it. This is it. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Is it hard to describe how it made you feel beyond stage? I mean, it's exhilarating. I think um, there is, I don't, it's hard to explain how it feels to, to be on stage. It, um, I think we have, we all, I think as actors, I think we have our, we we have to be a little bit crazy to like, be like, this is going to work out just fine. Like (laughs) this is a viable career path, especially being a performer with a disability with no one to point to when I was a kid to say, oh, I'm going to do that. Like to, to, uh, get to the place where, uh, I was just like, why not me? Like what? Why not me? So, um, and you know, if you keep asking that question long enough, I guess some, sometimes it, it comes to pass. And I love that your parents encouraged it, that they didn't say, even though there were no role models that you could find that they said, yeah, go yeah. for it. Yeah. My, um, my dad definitely was like, maybe you should double major. <laughs> like, maybe you should, because I went to a conservatory to, for acting school. And I was like, dad, I don't, I don't want to. Like part of, also the other thing about it was like, he was like, you know, you could teach, like maybe you could teach acting or whatever. And I was like, I was like, the most important thing about being a teacher to me is passion. And I was like, I don't have my, I don't have the passion to be a teacher. Like that's not where my passion lies. And I was like, I would not want to put myself in a position where I'm doing something just because, you know, it feels like a fallback kind of situation. So, um, but yeah, I mean, my parents, my mom would just drive me to auditions and drive me to play practice. And like, she would, um, you know, she, she started doing, uh, she started doing stuff. She would, she would, she started, she would, she's not a performer. She did not want to do any of that, but she, she started building sets and painting sets and she would go hang out in the, in the construction shop and like work with the guys and like, she loved it. And it's so it sort of, um, created this space for her as well, um, of, of something that she really enjoyed to be a, a part of that, of that world as well. It's so phenomenal that you all got involved and supported you. And so here you were at, uh, at the, uh, the Conservatory of Theater Arts at Webster University, and then you mm-hmm. ended up at the Goodman Theater. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I was, um, the summer after I graduated, I went to, um, I did summer stock in, uh, a cornfield in Illinois. <laughs> it was basically <laughs> where we did theater. And, um, there was a director there that summer named Chuck Smith, and he was directing a piece. Um, and he's a, he was a resident director at the Goodman and we just hit it off. And I think he appreciated my spunk and my, you know, you know, I didn't have any self-pity. I just was sort of like, let's go do, you know, let's go to work. And, um, he was directing a show the next season at the Goodman and he asked me to come be his assistant director. So, um, and then I ended up interning at the Goodman. The Goodman has really sort of been this really lovely, like 
first place for me to learn so much. I was, I ended up being the casting intern and I, I learned so much about auditioning. I learned so much about casting directors. I learned so much about how the people that are sitting across the table from you, you know, on the other side of the table, which seems so scary and so intimidating, all they want is for you to come in and knock their socks off. Like they are rooting for you to win and it makes them look better when you show up. And it just, it just kind of opened my eyes to that whole process as not something to be afraid of and not something to be like, like they are your enemy or like a dragon you have to slay or whatever. Like they want you to come in and make their job easy so they can go home, (laughs) you know? And how did you go from doing that, working as an intern and in casting to play Hedda Gabler and all these incredible roles? And I, you know, I just, I, I kind of did the internship and then started auditioning for stuff in Chicago. And I, um, I did, um, I got to do Lady Windermere's fan at Northlight and, um, years later did a play, um, back at the Goodman, um, where it was sort of like, I was inter, you know, intern makes good. Like, you know, the <laughs> casting intern from back in the day. Um, but Philip Seymour Hoffman directed, um, me in a play called, uh, the long red road at the Goodman. And, um, it was just this kind of beautiful, exciting homecoming, um, to, to kind of, get to show back up and, and, and be with all the people that I, you know, that where I got my start, um, which was really cool. It's so phenomenal. And then you ended up in LA, right? Doing film and TV and. Yeah. Um, yeah, Chicago, Chicago was a little (laughs) hard. Um, I was living in the city. I was a pedestrian. I would like park my car and not see it for three weeks. So in the winter, being a double above the knee amputee walking around on stilts every day on ice and snow and stuff. I was like, okay, this was a great place to cut my teeth and to kind of get my start. But, um, but I moved to LA. Um, cause I also did want to do, you know, I wanted to do TV and, um, I wanted to do all that stuff. So, so yeah, I spent, I've spent, I spent, I have spent the greater part of my, um, adult life and career in LA. Um, but I've been in New York for the last couple of years for this. So what was it like to come back? You said it's like visiting a friend to come back to Ani, to come back to the play after the world is so different since you last did it, you know, in 2017, 2018. And here you are, you know, post pandemic and hopefully the world is, has changed, you know, in terms of being more understanding. And I hope, I hope, um, I hope as well. That is my hope as well. I hope, (laughs) you know, post Pulitzer Prize, you know, all these pieces. What was that like to revisit the play? I mean, it's extraordinary. I mean, coming back to this piece is extraordinary anyway, but it's so interesting to do this play after what we've experienced globally and, um, to do this play that is so much about loss and loneliness and isolation. And every single one of these characters is feeling, feeling some sort of isolation. And 
having gone through what we went through in the, with COVID in the last couple of years, like we, there is a deeper understanding from, I think, everyone. And I think there were times, you know, as a society that we were really, ha- we really were confronted by um, the fragility of life and the, um, you know, the fact that there was an invisible monster out there and none of us knew, you know, early on, like, how do we, you're wiping down groceries and stuff. And it's just like, so I think, um, I think that that has changed. Uh, I mean, it couldn't, it can't help but change the perspective of the audience than the people who saw it before the pandemic, for sure. Do you remember when you learned about the Pulitzer? When I, you got, yeah. I do, I do. Um, uh, it was actually, I was, I was in LA. I was in Studio City in my apartment. It was um, a year after we closed the show off Broadway. And um, Wendell Pierce, actually, uh, who played Eddie for the first time ever. He was my first Eddie in um, Williamstown. Um, my phone rang and it was Wendell and I answered the phone and I was like, I was like, Hey, Wendell, what's going on? And he was like, I have, uh, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Sure. <laughs> he goes, he, I answered the phone and he, I was like, Hey, Wendell. And he goes, Pulitzer fucking prize. And I was like, <laughs> what? And he goes, Pulitzer fucking prize. That's all he said. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And he was like, I am not kidding you. So like, um, I found out from, from my, my first, my first Eddie and my buddy Wendell Pierce, which was just a really, a really lovely way to learn about the success of this script. And do you want to also talk about, I love that being a Paralympic champion runner. I love, I think that's so extraordinary that you have this whole other, this whole other piece of you that's an athlete. And I love that story of the doctor who told your mom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, she, she, uh, when I, so I was born without the lower halves of my legs. It was, uh, I'm not actually technically an amputee. Um, alert the, alert the media, but, um, uh, it's way easier to say amputee than it is to say congenital knee disarticulation. And then people are like, what, (laughs) what does that even mean? So, um, but my, uh, yeah, my mom early on was taking me to like doctor's appointments and stuff. And clearly there were moments for her. She's a rock star, but there were moments where it was like, you know, you have this tiny little baby and you have, you're facing this, like, what is this person's life going to be like? Um, and, uh, a doctor came in and sat with her and was talking to her. And I, um, and he said to her, he was like, you know, the world doesn't need another runner. Like she's going to find other things to, to enjoy and to be good at. And he was like, you know, we got that covered. And so, um, when I was given the opportunity to, I mean, just to even try running blades when I was 25, um, I had never run before in my life. Like what I was born without my legs. I was not a runner. (laughs) I was like, so, um, being able to sort of have the opportunity to 
have that chapter in my life where I got to travel around the world. I represented the United States. I set American records over and over again. And I, um, you know, came in sixth in the world among women who, uh, there were only two of us that were bilateral above the knee amputees. Most of us, most everyone I was competing against had a sound side. So, or a, a, an able-bodied, you know, leg on one side. And, um, so out of the blocks, I, I was always, you know, I was always playing catch up. So to come in sixth in the world, uh, you know, in a, in a hundred meters in front of 80,000 people, um, and setting Amer an American record that day was just, it's, um, incredible, incredible. And not anything I would ever in a million years have seen myself doing. I, was a, a part of the opening ceremonies of the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. And I, and I sang, I was a, sing, a little kid singer. And I was like, this makes sense. Like that to me was the <laughs> only time I was ever going to have any sort of brush with the Olympic anything. And, um, fast forward to, you know, all these years later, running a hundred meters, 200 meters for the United States. It's just bananas. It's bananas. Incredible. And I love how you say part of it, part of the success is falling down, that when you fell, that that's when you learn the most. Absolutely. I think failure in, in any aspect of life, I think failure is such a huge part of not only the learning process, but it also failure really is an opportunity for you to get a gauge on your dedication to what it is that you are trying to do. If failure happens, uh, and it creates a roadblock that you are not willing to bust through your dedication to whatever that is. And, and it can be in a, a beautiful thing for you to learn and say, okay, I'm not, do I need to do this this badly? No. And then you go on your way and you focus on the other things that, that, make you passionate and determined, but, um, failure can just be this, you know, for me, it always is moments of just digging my feet in and just being like, ah, I'm going to do this. Like it's, um, it, it, uh, failure tends to be pretty motivational to me. I mean, after I lick my wounds and I cry and I'm sad and I get over it and I'm like, Ugh, okay, <sighs> let's do it. Let's try again. Let me try again. Let me at it. You know? And isn't it true that your mom made a t-shirt for you that said, mm -hmm. uh, to get, yeah, that you, when you walked around London, yeah, I'll let you tell she, that story. Yeah. With the, um, when I got, we, my mom came to London and, um, to watch me compete. And, uh, you know, and I was super nervous and all this stuff, but she actually had a shirt made that said, uh, the world doesn't need another runner. Um, which is just like, it's just, it uh, it's just, again, goes to show the, the amazing like support and commitment of my family and my parents growing up with like, not, not ever seeing my physical circumstances, something that, was to be ashamed of or wrong or, um, something to be hidden. It was like, what do you want to do? Yeah, let's do it. Here we go. You know? That's so great. Will they be there for your opening or? 
Um, she is okay. here. My mom is here. Um, she is uh, running around. She's been she's been here all all weekend, but she's um, she's coming tonight to opening. Um, my father passed away actually, so um, about a year I'm and a sorry. half ago. But you know what? He almost actually almost two years ago. We're approaching two years, but um, he knew that this was happening, which is just a really you know lovely lovely thing to know that he, you know, was, and it, um, he sort of knew that there were these successes being lined up for me, which was a really lovely thing for me to know that he had that knowledge. Like our last text message exchanges, um, were me telling him that I had like, uh, booked that, um, the big arc of a character on Dexter new blood. And I, you know, he was like, I'm so proud of you. And, um, and, uh, you know, I, you know, so the last sort of exchanges I had had with him, he knew I was going to be going to Broadway. He knew I was on this big TV show. Like it was just, um, you know, it doesn't compare to like having him actually there, but, um, I know, I know he was proud of me. I, I hope that he is still proud of me. Yes. And, um, and I think about him a lot. I think about him, um, when I'm, I've been really trying this whole experience for me has been an, an exercise in trying to remain present and grateful. Um, and I think that, um, you know, losing, losing a parent is, um, it helps you get a little bit of perspective of it's finite. We don't have, you know, and so when these things, these moments, these big moments come for you in your life, just trying to take a minute to gratitude and being present and, um, acknowledging that. And then, um, and not worrying so much about, oh gosh, what's happening next? Where am I, you know, like, what are we, where, what's going to happen? And all this stuff, like just, just be in the moment, be grateful, be present and the the rest of it is just going to work itself out. Yes. With well, a lesson. Do you want to talk about Dexter? Another firecracker sure. role in Esther? Yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm starting to be typecast. I don't know. Like, um, uh, they're all no, different. <laughs> they're very different. Esther, Esther, and Ani are very different women. But um, um, no, Esther uh, on Dexter New Blood. What is the she was the town gossip and she is, uh, they, uh, she was just dressed outrageously. I'd spark, you know, like I had rhinestones on my nails. Like she was so extra and, um, and big hair. Yes. Teased. I, it took me, it took me a solid six months to kind of, um, get my hair back. But, um, no, she, um, First of all, being on Dexter, I was a huge fan of the original series. So like, n- I mean, I was even just auditioning. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't even believe I get to audition for this show. Um, and, uh, but it was a lovely group of people and Michael C. Hall, just, you know, shows like that, um, the star, uh, really sort of sets the tone and, um, Michael is such a consummate professional and kind and, you know, he was, he basically picks up this entire series and carries it on his back. And, um, and he's just lovely. He's a lovely person. So, um, working with him made, made it 
easier and fun. And Esther, um, you know, she's, she was the town gossip. And the thing that was also lovely about what they did with that piece is she is just a woman, uh, who lives her life with a disability and has a job. Like it was not a plot point. It was not emotionally manipulative that she was disabled. She, um, she just showed up to work and was good at her job and was a little bit of a gossip, but like, and I, and I talked to like Clyde Phillips and, and Scott Reynolds, the right, you know, the writers on the show. And I was like, I just appreciate the fact that you didn't make a meal out of the fact that she was disabled, but that she just is a person with a job. And I was like, we need to see more of that because it normalizes it for people. Yeah, because I read that you're, uh, first of all, Michael C. Hall, he's a theater guy. So yes, another kindred spirit, yes. you know, doing lots of theater. But you know, aren't you, I read writing um, a pilot, a series about somebody who's an amputee? Yeah, we, it's a, it's a um, gosh, the development process. It's funny. Uh, I was saying to somebody recently, I was like, I am amazed that anything is ever made. Yeah, I know, <laughs> it's television. kind of a miracle. It's a yeah. miracle that anything <laughs> ever gets made. But um, um, yeah, we are developing, we've been kind of developing it over the course of a number of years. And um, we've kind of picked up these amazing people along the way. Um, I did a, co- uh, an, um, a production of Cost of Living in London and um, a genius writer um, named Georgia Pritchett, who... Um, She's uh, a producer and writer on Succession, and she was on Veep, and she she was a showrunner for um, The Shrink Next Door. And um, she we met up for lunch. She asked me to have lunch with her, and she was like, can I write something for you? I was like, yes, please. Can <laughs> um, I say yes faster? But um, it's been really interesting, though, because we've, even with incredible people attached to it and, um, uh, a beautiful script, funny, dark humor, which is kind of my wheelhouse. And like, um, then the amount of resistance that we've felt has been disappointing at times. Um, but we're, I think we're kind of at a, we had to sort of step back for a minute and now we're, we're kind of in communication again about how do we, how, how might what I'm doing now possibly change the conversation for that piece later. Yeah. And yeah, that's great that you're going back to it, yeah. you know, not giving up. And cause I think also I'm thinking about how, when you became an, an athlete, wasn't it kind of a lull in your career in acting? I feel like, yeah, there was this bit of a lull of, you know, I had done, my name is Earl and I was still in this place a bit of like uh, practicing what I called the art of blending in where I wear cosmetic covers over my prosthetics and I would wear jeans all the time. And I would, um, I didn't want to necessarily be exposed in that way. And so I was really pushing my um, agent at the time to be submitting me for anything, able-bodied, you know, whatever. But like, we just were not, I, I, we're at a tipping point that things are different now because we were, we, at the time there was, 
I would have, I mean, acting is my soul and, um, you know, track was just this epic adventure, but at the core of it, like if something had come up for me, um, I would have stepped away from the track in an instant. Um, but it, it really just, the way that it all kind of worked out, it's like the, just sort of this clear, there was this clearing for me to do this thing. And, um, it's interesting how running has kind of become art imitating life in some ways. There've been shows that I did, um, NCIS New Orleans, and they were like, we rewrote the scene and we, you sure you're going to be running on a track and like all this stuff. And they'd be like, we've been dying to use this track anyway, like for a location. And, and I was, I, this was in New Orleans and I was like, that all sounds amazing. And like, awesome. I was like, my running legs are in LA. <laughs> they were like, Oh no, no, we'll overnight them. It's fine. It's fine. So like we had to like, I was like, you could have just told me to bring them. But, um, yeah, it's been interesting. This like dynamic, this thing that has sort of like, they're sort of this intertwined thing. And it's, it's really cool. Do you, do you recall some of the best acting advice you've gotten or I think, um, honestly working, working with Philip Seymour Hoffman, being directed by Phil, oh. um, I, I kind of joke and I say it felt like I got my master's degree in acting when, when I worked <laughs> with him because it just felt, uh, I had never been around someone to that, to that level that the craft of acting mattered to him. So it was this like precious, precious thing. And, um, but he was, um, uh, he was the one that really, um, helped me realize that like, it's never going to be perfect and it's never going to, it's going to be, I got it in a way that like the work is never done. And on the day you close, you should find something new, um, in either something you're scene partner is doing or some, some way that you've kind of broken out of a vocal pattern or surprising yourself in some way. Um, and if you aren't searching for that, then you're missing the point because, um, and that is specifically, honestly, more talking about live theater and like getting on that roller coaster and taking the ride every single time and committing to that and committing to, um, listening. I mean, uh, that's the other thing, the best, the best advice I could ever give for an actor is, um, uh, my, my fiance. And I always say, um, that, uh, uh, you have to listen like your life depends on it because often it does for these characters. And so, um, and that makes all the difference. And you can tell, you can tell when an actor is actively listening and not just either standing there t zoning out, thinking about the, the fact that they have to do laundry later or whatever, but like in, in that moment and actually listening for those subtle changes, because that's where the, you know, spontaneity comes from. And, and the, um, the real emotion comes from is, is active listening. And is there something you wish you could tell that little girl who was listening to Annie, who was watching Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and thinking, okay, why not me? But how, how, how? Yeah. And here you are making your Broadway debut, you know, with this friend of a character 
this who you've lived with for all these years, is there something you wish you could say? Um, girl, I wish I could, I wish I could go back in time and tell her that it's possible. I mean, I know there were so many times that it felt like it was just impossible. And like, why am I still doing this? And why am I sticking with this? And I, um, but also like, you know, it's more about sh- doing a good, do your best work. You can show up every single day and do your best work that those are the people who are successful long-term long-term are the ones that, that put their entire soul into what it is they're doing. Um, I would also probably tell her it's going to take you longer than you think, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a longer journey and a longer road than you think. And, um, and that's okay because, uh, it's sweeter. If I just like, you know, graduated from college and got some gig right away and was on Broadway, I don't know that I would have the incredible level of gratitude that I do. Um, and also the respect for, um, my piece to this puzzle and, and the respect for showing up and doing, doing the work with my, my scene partner, you know? Beautiful. Well, so much congratulations, Katie. Thank you so the much. Cost of living. It's such a treat to talk to you always and uh, really excited about cost of living. Thank you. Coming back to New York and to yes. Broadway. It still happens every day. When lightning strikes, it's the moment you know. The theme song was written by Tom McGovern. This episode was edited by Kyle Moore. This episode was produced by Anna Stroud. When lightning strikes. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.